This is Always Be Watching. We watch, you decide. This week, new Netflix cultural comedy Gentified will have you wanting some delicious, delicious tacos. Chris, he hits the Tropical Island podcast with us via Coconut as he tells us about the latest season of Survivor. Dan, that's me. He watches a movie made for every dad ever called Richard Jewell and we salivate over the new cartoon made by one of the guys from The Simpsons, Duncanville. We have TV to talk about. Let's get on to it, shall we? Guys, this is Always Be Watching. My name, it's Dan. I did. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. Oh I'm joined God. here by Chris. Hi, Dan. How are you? Look, I'm doing good. I said guys at the beginning, but that's the sort of uh, broader encompassment of guys because, you know, I'd like people who aren't identifying as guys. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's kosher. Yeah. Mm. As opposed to saying kosher, which I don't think is kosher. No, that's not cool. <laughs> no, that's fine. I think, I, think, uh, I think the Jewish people are fine with that. Uh, it's great to be back here with you, Dan. Look, I'm very excited to be here. I thought I was going to be dead this weekend. I got a bit sick. Look, I'll be honest. I'm actually surprised you're alive. I mean, I'm surprised for a number of reasons, and it's not just this week. We've talked about this before, but you know what the great thing about being a grown-up and getting sick is? You get to watch more TV. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to add more TV to my life, but (laughs) somehow I managed to squeeze it in. Yeah, that's right. So, Chris, can I tell you the hardest part of doing this podcast? Mm, Yes. I mean, beyond having to come in and talk to you every week. Yes. Yeah. Sitting down... Like, usually I'll send a text to you and I'll say, hey, look, this is what I want to talk about. And you respond back with two things. Yep. Uh, this week you hit me first and you're like, this is what I'm talking about. Mm. And I'm there and I'm like, I've done nothing this week except ah. for watching. Because you know how at the beginning of this podcast series, uh, we've done now 50 episodes. This is 51 this week, Chris. Wow, that's amazing. That's I'm impressed much. with us. We should have celebrated last week. <laughs> we really should have. Like a cake or something. Yeah. Maybe yeah. someone will send us a cake. Maybe. Actually, don't send us a cake. No, no, no. That's a terrible idea. Do you know what sort of people listen to this podcast, Chris? <laughs> not the kind you would want to eat a cake from. Definitely not. No. You, you don't want them making a cake. You don't want them handling the cake. Okay. Don't handle any food and send it to us, please. Exactly. Not in this day and age of coronavirus. True, true. See, if I mention the coronavirus, then it seems like we're just worried about the disease and not because they're filthy hands. <laughs> not because we know where their hands have been. Exactly. So anyway, I've done nothing but watch Terrace House, oh, yes. which you may remember I talked about liking Terrace House. Watched an episode or two, never went back to it. I went to a different season of the show. I went to the first Netflix season, and I've done nothing but watch Terrace House day in, day out. Why are you so obsessed with Terrace House? Since Sunday afternoon, and this is uh, Wednesday afternoon now, Yes, I've watched 18 episodes. 18 episodes in four <laughs> is, days? Is that unhealthy? I don't know. And this and, isn't casual watching, because there's subtitles, so you've got to pay attention. That's like four to six a day. That seems like a lot. Yeah, that does seem like a lot. <laughs> what am I doing with my life? But yeah, I've been watching a lot of Terrace House. It, it just grabbed me. Uh, refresh me, but what is Terrace House? See, you knew about Terrace House, and it surprised me when I did it. Okay, so Terrace House, because I'm not a reality guy. I like the script. Oh, I remember what Terrace House is. Yeah, this is a yeah. Japanese reality show. It's yes. kind of like their Big Brother. Yes. But it's not like Big Brother where people are locked in a house. Rather, they just put on, Actually, it's more like uh, the real world. Yes. is probably the good comparison point. So, the idea is that, yeah, th- uh, six Japanese uh, people, three guys, three girls, they're all aged somewhere between like 20 to 30-ish, thereabouts, put them in a house together. Inevitably, a lot of them are looking for love, and they're all looking for love in the wrong place, and that place is Terrace House. Yes, right. <laughs> so, you know, from what I can tell from the 18 episodes, there's one season that I've watched. There's a lot of hooking up going on. But what I really like about Terrace House is that, one, 
everyone's very polite and nice and they're not in there to play the game. They're in there just be in Terrace House and, you know, meet people and have an experience. That's good. It's all very nice. It's all very, uh, you know, lo-fi and there's no drama or anything. People are just there. God, I hate drama. But there is drama because lying underneath every person is passions and dreams and, you know, just a desire to want and be loved. People are so stupid. People are stupid. But in Terrace House, like, this is kind of what's going on and... The other thing, and because I've never lived in Japan, I've, you know, holidayed in Japan. Sure. I've spent four glorious weeks there. But that's not really enough to, like, meet a social group and get to know people on, like, a human level. No. So everything I know about Japan, I refer to the phrase as courting, um, comes from, you know, third-party reporting around the place. So sure. I, I don't really know for sure, but everything I seem to have understood is that as a culture, Japan's actually got a bit of an intimacy issue with young people where they're not really necessarily forming those bonds. They're not having drunken hookups in the way that we do in Australia. That's romance. <laughs> yes, that's right. They don't really do that. Instead, it's, you know, everyone's a little bit more closed off and people aren't really engaging socially generally, let alone with like that sort of, you know, desire of love and whatnot. Totally. So watching Terrace House has been interesting in, and it's through a TV prism, so I don't quite know how much I should really buy into the way that they're all talking. Sure. But I feel that you can usually get like a sense of a culture by the way, like by the way people talk to each other and what they're saying and what they're not saying and the way that they go about saying it. Yeah. So you can sort of tell what's constructed and what isn't. And I sort of get the feeling from this that it's not, maybe not quite as dire as I'd read that people just aren't really hooking up at all. But really, there's no sort of animalistic aspect to it all. It's very restrained. And if you were to, you know, go into like 1980s like movie parlance, it's not about like getting to like third base or getting a home run. You know what I mean? I know, yeah? Dan. It's not about that. I really don't. Like, I don't ever know what those bases are. I'm not even no sure. One is, no. no, I don't know baseball. Cool. <laughs> no, me neither. In this, the oldest sort of romantic act was when this guy ends up. He organizes romantic sort of entanglement with his young lady, and they hold hands. Oh, that's they, so sweet. They kiss for the first time, and that scene is like the end all be all. That's pretty much as far as I ever get. Yeah. Um, and of course, you've got the hick. Is it? Well, you've been in a relationship for a while now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, the is it the hikamori? Is that how you say it? Where the you know, which is the e- extreme end of that? Where the, oh, you talking about like the teenage boys? Yeah, like, where the where the well, teenage people, I think, who can't who aren't relating to anybody and who are very much just isolated in their rooms and who are uh, not reaching out at all. So it's probably uh, you know, it's good to see something that's not just that idea perpetuated mm. again. I guess. Yeah, and I guess maybe the romantic storylines that I see in anime and like manga, <laughs> like they just make a lot more sense when you start looking at it through this prism. Yeah, right. Yeah. But anyway, Terrace House, it's really fascinating. Okay. And I had no intent, that's my phone because I'm <laughs> unprofessional. I had no intention to talk about Terrace House, but I've watched a lot of it. Fair enough. And I've managed to talk about a TV show. Excellent. If you're interested in reality shows, if you're not interested in reality shows, maybe give this one a look because it's a bit more fun and just uh, structured and vibe of it's just really quite different to a lot of the stuff we're used to here in terms of Western reality. Uh, Is that a segue point for me to talk about um, the first thing I'm going to talk about? Chris, let's talk about the first show we're going to discuss this week. (laughs) What are we talking about? Well, if you are into reality shows, you would have no question. You would have, you would not have to be reminded that um, Survivor is back on television. Survivor, never heard of it. The American uh, edition of Survivor, uh, season 40. It's the biggest battle in Survivor history. 20 returning winners. Coming back out here, I can feel my blood starting to rise. It's like the Super Bowl, 20 years in the making. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. It is a miracle that I'm sitting here today. Mm. 
Dan, season 40. Okay, that sounds like a lot, but Survivor do two seasons a year. Yeah, so that's 20 years. Yeah. You're saying that that's not, a lot, that's not a lot of Survivor? 20 years worth of Survivor? I mean, that's a lot, but also they kicked off in 2000, and there's a lot of reality shows that have put in just as many years at this point now. <laughs> Is there really? Um, I thought Survivor like, was one of the first. I mean, it's, it's definitely one of the first like big ones in the US. Yeah. Uh, but like Amazing Race is pretty close to 20. Mm. Might be like about a year or two mm. after, but like that's close. Survivor Season 40, 20 years of Survivor, winners at war. So this is the first time that we've had All-Star Survivor before, not to be mm. confused with All-Star Survivor. That's where all the people that people like come back. So the popular people. The popular people come back. Yeah. This is the winners, who are not always the most popular people. Def- well, rarely are they the most popular people, really. I mean, as evidence in this room alone. <laughs> That's right. Mm. Have all uh, been the, the, the most, I guess, uh, spectacular winners have been brought back to fight it out against each other in a um, battle to the death, uh, in which, no, they're not really going to die. But so There's no well. heads on sticks. And there's no heads. Well, there could be. It's only, I'm only two episodes in. Um... But yeah, so it's not. It's an interesting ramshackle bunch of them, really. Considering um, I, I certainly don't recognise them all. I haven't watched 40, 40 seasons of Survivor. I probably watched about ten. I was mm. very, I was very heavily invested in the beginning, and I've dipped in and out over years. Um, you would know Robin Amber. I do. Um, in fact, they were recently on the Amazing Race. That's right. They've done it all. They're the, they're the superstars of um, of reality TV of Survivor and everything else. Uh, so they're back, and then a whole bunch of other ones. Um, some dude called Tony. I don't know. He's Tony. Pretty cool. Tony. <laughs> That's it. Uh, Tony's won twice already. Oh wow! And um, he's he's back to win again. Um, Did the they have that nerdy guy from like about four or five seasons ago? <laughs> Sorry, this is the one season I watched. Sure, why not? Um, well, he was like the guy most unlikely to win at Survivor, and he did win, but he won at the end. And like I thought, if you're going to have a show of just winners, ah. he'd be a fun one to bring back for that. He probably is. I'll do some research on that, Dan. Let me see I'll if get, I can find his name, and I'll get back to you next week. The other thing of note about Survivor uh, season 40, 20 years winners at war is um, that it is with the uh, it has a two million dollar cash prize so it's the largest cash prize in the history of reality TV the winner will take home two million dollars which I think is one million dollars after the tax man gets to it what, but still what do they usually it's offer? usually one million which I believe was the biggest to that point so it has been doubled for this um, particular uh, season of Survivor. Will it be the last? I guess it won't be because it's obviously still doing very well and people still love tuning in for it. I've got friends who are Survivor freaks. They never miss an episode of this. Do you? I, I can't imagine you've seen very much. As you say, you're not very much a reality guy. Look, what? literally the one season of it that I've watched and got really invested in it was season 23. Here we go. I thought it was like really quite recent, but apparently it's quite a few years ago I was watching this. <laughs> 17 so was, years ago. No, 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 no. Season that? 23, oh, so I don't do math, carry the one. I like five years ago. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, it was a season where John Cochran won, and he was a very sort of scrawny young guy who used his fame on Survivor to go and become a sitcom writer. Well, wow. So he's written for great CBS sitcoms, CBS broadcaster of Survivor. Uh, he's written for The Millers, and more recently, Kevin Can Wait. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Uh, well, good on him. Still, I like to see people transition out of reality TV into a career in the business, especially if it's not doing more reality TV. Oh, sorry, he came back for a second season, which was season 26. It was a fans versus favorites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess um, he was a favorite. Yeah. Also, I think he's a fan. 
We're probably a fan as well. Um, the really interesting thing about Survivor is how after 20 years, the show's pretty much exactly the same. Like, they do these little tweaks, you know. They sort of change a little tiny bit. They'll add a little uh, a little um, tweak to the game to make it a little bit more interesting and to kind of, I guess, change the dynamic and stop people just, stop the contestants from just copying the way that previous winners have done. So this for this particular season, they've introduced a currency. So everybody in the show is given a... Um, what was it, some kind of token. When you get eliminated from the show, you give your token to somebody else. So obviously someone will amass tokens and then the person with the most tokens will be able to have some unfair advantage or some advantage, I should say, over the others. So it's an you know an another interesting way to build relationships. This is a very big part of Survivor. Alliances mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And then uh, to kind of create a bit of a power struggle which will result in tears and drama and excitement. So my experience with Survivor is that from the first like two or three episodes, I find it a bit hard going. Yes. Because like it's very much about setting up the premise for it and then you kind of have to get to know the people. For sure. And the power plays aren't really sort of that intense at that point. But once you sort of fall into the spell of Survivor, there is no TV show that's as engaging as this that isn't called Terrace House. <laughs> that's, no, it's very true. Like, that's right. You can't just kind of jump back in and go, oh, no, this is a great season from yeah. one episode. You, you need to commit yourself to saying, I'm going to watch this season of Survivor. Yeah, that's and right. It's thoroughly rewarding when you do. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm on the fence now. I don't know whether I should, um, I guess, because I, I, it's been a few years. I had a friend say, this is a great one. You've got to watch this one. Um, started watching it and I had that exact same reaction where it's like, oh yeah, well it's just Survivor again but I know that it will be there it will be rewarding if I do stick it out So, mm. um, and I do think that the interesting tweaks on it that they've put uh, will kind of be rewarding and the other thing is that like you know, they're all playing very hard. These are people that have been very good at it and they're all like the, the extra ego boost of being the like winner of the winners of Survivor is surely enough to make people go a bit crazy with them. Um, how they approach the game. So, yes, I think it'll be very exciting. Now, with Survivor, because I try not to pay too much attention to Survivor purely because I always have this ambition that I'll go back and, like, watch seasons of Survivor. Right. So I try not to, like, know too when much. All the, when you watch all the other TV. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when all I've, that's finished. I have to run out of Terrace House at some point. Yeah, sure. But the thing that I know about the last season of Survivor, season 39 is that there was a lot of controversy around that season mm. and there was quite a lot of diehard Survivor fans who were so upset with what happened in that season that they actually swore off the show and said they weren't going to keep on watching. Uh. I knew that was lies because those same people are deeply into this new season. Yeah, yeah. So I think I've won back a lot of these uh, fans. But my understanding with the previous season is you had a guy on the show who was a little bit more handsy than he should have been. Ah. Uh. And despite the fact that he'd been warned about it, there was some shenanigans going on where some characters decided to use the... Uh, sexual politics of the moment where everyone's very concerned about that sort of behavior and actually use that as part of the gameplay wow. to take this guy out. So they built, a, and I'm going by memory here, and as I said, I didn't pay a lot of attention. So if I'm off base on a little bit of this, but my understanding is that these two women went around and actually manipulated the situation and everyone else's uh, you know, innate wokeness to like get this guy off the island or vote someone else off the island as right. part of the power play associated with that. So... I know, it was very interesting, but a lot of fans were really upset with the way that all played yeah, out. Yeah, sure. Because CBS, as a broadcaster, uh, there was, I think, an incident that happened straight after that. And CBS allowed a lot of activity to go ahead on the show where some of the women on the program who were like upset this guy was just being a little bit more handsy than he should be, they weren't really having their like duty of care to... Yeah, yeah, sure. 
And so people... This has come up in other uh, reality yeah. shows. But, course. like, at the moment, people are very concerned about this. And mm. so viewers saw this happening on screen. It's like, well, no, this show owes it to these people. Why am I supporting this program that's not, you know, following through on their obligations? And yeah. There was a lot of fallout from that. But it seems as though CBS have, like, pulled this season together, which I'm sure was probably filmed before... Yeah. Like that season was even being broadcast, but it does seem like they managed to have just won everyone over with what's been, by all accounts, like an exceptional season of Survivor, and maybe like a return to classic kind of uh, yeah. ideas of Survivor. And yeah, the fact it's a season of winners, I think, probably helps to get over the line there. Yeah, and you can tell that that gives it an extra level of maybe competitiveness and and maybe seriousness, I guess, that it mm. wouldn't have. Where it's like, all oh, right, this is one we should pay attention to because these people are going to play hard, and this is going to be an interesting. Uh, this is going to be an interesting one. Yeah, uh, question and. I, t- I like I go into this knowing that you're not a huge survivor head, yeah. and you're not really a big reality guy generally. You like no. your docos, no, 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 really like yeah, reality. I dip in it. Yeah. Uh, so when you're thinking about sort of shows like Survivor, the one thing that always stops me from getting excited about the most recent episode of Survivor and the Amazing Race is the other big one that I watched. Like, yeah, I was really into. I was really into yeah. that one for a while. Yeah, I think I spent like about four or five years just obsessed over it. Yeah, and I dipped out, but I watched about two or three seasons a bit earlier this year, and I'm like. And just hankering for the new one. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. get straight back in. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thinking uh, that might anyway, happen with me. My question for you is, when you hear about seasons which are like, oh, these are the fan favourites or these are the previous winners, does that excite you as someone who's not a regular viewer? Yes, it I does. think so. I think that makes it a bit more interesting to me than just another season. I don't know why, because I don't even have any more reference points or whatever. I, I feel ostracised from it. Like, do I don't you? know who oh, these winners you, are, right, so therefore... you don't have that same relationship and... Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I just feel like it gives me a bit more... Uh, I guess it just gives me a bit more of an incentive to watch it because obviously these people have been interesting enough to win it or to do something that has warranted them to come back. So it's like, oh, maybe I'll check that out. But yeah. you missed the backstory. Missed you the want backstory. the backstory. But I, I don't have that connection with them. Mm. And but and so just that labelling that I know that these people are people that I should have had some sort of experience with, like it just doesn't... Yeah, really put you off a bit. Oh, that's interesting. Different strokes, I guess, Dan. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's enough to talk about Survivor, uh, but it is now screening on... Dan will have to tell you that. I don't know any of those things. Uh, so, in the US, you can watch it on CBS. Yep. In Australia, you can find it on... I want to say it's on Channel 9's channel Go. 9Go, I think, is the actual name of the channel. But if you want to watch it in high definition, you'd get on the 9 Now, their streaming service, and watch it that way. That's how I watched it. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's a very yeah, and the, the, uh, and I think we're only a few episodes in, so plenty of time to to get in on the ground level or binge a few to get started. Absolutely. So I think they're what like three weeks in, maybe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So like this is the time to quickly just like catch up on it and yep. get into it. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. Um, and unlike Australian Survivor, they only screen one hour a week, which means it is actually easy to catch up on, <laughs> yeah. and you're not stuck having to watch twelve hours just to see a week's worth of Survivor. And like, which day is it on? And I don't even know. <sighs> can never keep up with that stuff. I've got a lot of TV to watch. I don't have time for big stripped reality shows. Dan. Chris. Tell us about the thing you have been watching. Chris, I've been watching a brand new Netflix cultural comedy. Oh. No, no, it's not Acropolis Now. <laughs> it's not a remake of Acropolis Now. It's not even a Wogs Out of Work related oh, series. Well, I'm checking out. I'm tapping out right now, Dan. You carry on. I've got to check my Facebook. This is a series called Gensified. Buenos dias. I brought my bull bacon donuts. Oh, hey, Pop, I've been brainstorming ways for you to make more revenue. You know, I was thinking like targeted marketing, social media. Move. You should do like a loyalty program with a punch card, but it's like in the shape of a taco. Hey, so that... Why are you girls always biting like comadres over leftovers? I'm trying to do my job, and I can't get this mosca out of the kitchen. Mm. Did you use a flash water? Oh, good idea. She fly, don't bother us. Ah. 
But Pop, really, you should think about changing the menu. You know, like introducing a new taco of the week. Oh, see? Yeah, you should experiment with new flavors and introduce seasonal ingredients. Uh, what do you think? Poloría, pero pues desde que desde que caminé por la montaña para cruzar la frontera en la oscuridad de la noche, levanté este humilde restaurante para que los hijos de mis hijos tuvieran una vida mejor. Estoy cansado. Yes, Pop, preach. So, Chris, I'm not going to go too deep into this one, but I wanted to let you know there's a very sort of charming comedy that's currently airing on Netflix. Airing. Look at old man Dan here. <laughs> currently streaming on Netflix called Gentified. The premise of this program is a sh- it's a premise that you're well familiar with and feels a little bit worn at this point, which is why I'm maybe not gaga for the program, but it's a charming enough show that I'm kind of into it. Uh, it's a Mexican family, like, in Mexico. Uh, they were a bit concerned about the uh, financial status of the Mexican restaurant that's uh, sustained the family for a couple of generations at this point. Mm-hmm. The guy that owns the restaurant, he's a senior guy. He's probably uh, late 50s, I think, at this point. His son was a bit of a never-do-well. 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 <laughs> uh, I think he may have gone to prison, and he's since raised the grandkids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a bit of an extended gra- family of grandkids. Uh, there's two that are still sort of hanging around. So there's the son of, you know, the father who's in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I think it's his cousin or sister. I didn't quite catch the relationship with her. But anyway, she's effectively a sister. And then there's another guy who I think might also be a cousin, but he could be a brother. This is what happens when you don't pay attention in the first five minutes of the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you miss some of the finer details. But anyway, for all intents and purposes, these three act like brothers and sisters. And they may well be. But they're I just cousins. don't think they quite are. They're cousins? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but their relationship is fairly close, or at least close enough that they've got like the bond of siblings, even if that's not strictly the case. Sure. So one of the brothers has been working at the restaurant and is uh, he's kind of followed in the footsteps of his father as a bit of a ne'er-do-well. <laughs> But he's... Can't wait till you say that one more time. Uh, three times, uh, Candyman turns up behind <laughs> yeah. me. He struggled with being able to find a place for... Like, working out what he wants to do in life. Sure. So, he doesn't really have an education to speak of. He's gotten his on-again, off-again girlfriend pregnant. She's a bit more ambitious than he is. And so, she doesn't really want anything to do with him at this point because he clearly just has no drive. And, this is all very relatable yeah, at this she, point. She needs to get ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so you've got him, you've got the sister who's a lesbian artist, and both of those aspects come into a fair bit in the first three or four episodes that I've seen. They haven't really built out a character that much, but she's got a regular girlfriend who, she's kind of fun when she's in it, but I don't really know who she is because I haven't done enough with her character yet, so that's sure. a little bit frustrating. But then the other character who's probably a lot more prominent is the cousin who has gone off and really made something of himself. He's also working as a, um, he's working in a kitchen. He wants to be able to go off to France to pursue being a chef to the highest sort of levels. But he's working in like the fancy restaurant in town. Sure. Okay. But he's, and you know where the storyline's going because it's called Gentrified and part of it's about like the gentrification of the neighborhood that this restaurant's in. So in episode three or four, whatever it is I just watched the other night, the restaurants uh, that this guy works for, he had a bit of a flip out because everyone, all the other kitchen hands just don't really think much of this guy because he's not a real Mexican. Right. So, have a bit of a contest in the kitchen to prove his Mexican bona fides. Uh, he sort of half proves it, but they still don't really quite buy into it sure. until the head chef comes in and he's just like a Gordon Ramsay wannabe sort of douchebag. 
comes in, starts yelling at one of the staffers, which is a regular occurrence. But on this day that he'd, like this guy had been uh, trying to prove his bona fides, he stood up for one of his colleagues and, you know, got thrown out. And so on that day, he became a true Mexican because Excellent. the boss kicked yeah, him out yeah. of the restaurant. So we know what's going to happen now, which is that he'll go to his grandfather's restaurant. He'll introduce some dishes, which will be a lot more fancy and bring in a crowd, which will save the restaurants and it'll probably become, you know, the hot space, hot, you know, food place in town. Yeah. We know where it's going. We know who all these characters are because we've seen versions of these characters in so many shows before. But there's something so easy about watching this program. Right. Okay. Like, it's a fun show in that it's a mixture of languages. So, you kind of have to pay attention because they'll be speaking English one moment and, you know, Spanish the next and... Like interchange, like sentence to sentence, like yeah, it's yeah, all right. over the place. So you really have to be quite vigilant in what's going on. Yeah. Otherwise, you miss simple things like are they cousins or brothers? <laughs> you don't really know for sure. But it's actually funny. There's laugh out loud moments. The actors embody their characters like just really naturally from the first episode. Yeah, right. It's a fun, relaxing watch. And if you're just after a cool, fun ten episode Netflix show, it's definitely one you should be giving a look to. I am definitely after that. Yeah. Uh, I like things to be, um, you know, nice and easy. And I also like, uh, I really like tacos. Who doesn't love tacos? I think it'll make me hungry watching it though, will it? Is there a lot of, is there focus on the food? So I have very cannily only watched this late at night. So I've already had like a delicious meal. So far, (laughs) none Mexican inspired. But I've always been like reasonably full before I've watched the program. But I definitely think that, you know, if the situation (laughs) was like, this is a 6.30 show and I know that dinner's coming at 7.00. Yeah, and it's going to yeah. really do it for you, isn't it? Mm. Um, are there any of the people in things that I would recognise, Dan? No. Oh, even better. I kind of yeah. like that. I like to meet some new people. Like it's all new people. Excellent. And is it made for American Netflix or has it been made for Mexican Netflix? So, Is I, there such a thing as Mexican Netflix? Look, there's Netflix in 174 countries around the world. Yeah. Yeah, so... Is Mexico one of them? There's a Netflix for everyone. <laughs> yeah. uh, so this you don't is, know. I'm so what up. I do know about this program is... Though I think it's actually made, like, it might be even shot in Los Angeles. I'm not yeah, 100% yeah, sure. sure. Uh, but it's actually a spin-off from a web series that existed. Ah. So when I finish out the 10 episodes on Netflix, I'm going to track down the web series and see what it's like. Yeah, that's a great... I, I love the um, web series spin-off into a show. It's always yeah. very fun to go back and watch the original. I generally don't like web series very much. I find the and short watch form... them if there's already been a show about yeah, them, then absolutely. I go back and watch them. Yeah, yeah. If I've already bought into it. Yeah. Definitely. But yeah, I find the short form nature of web series just a little bit too hard to really get into. Fair enough. Yeah. Because there's a lot of setup that has to happen. So you've... Let's say that your web episode is eight to ten minutes long. Yeah. At the beginning of the episode, you need to establish what's going to be happening in that episode. Yeah. You need stuff to happen. And then you need it to have some sort of resolution or build to a cliffhanger, which will take you into the next webisode. That's a lot to do in like eight to ten minutes. <laughs> it really is, isn't it? And so yeah. there isn't enough time for you to really find like a strong connection to it. And you can say, oh, we'll just watch four or five of them back to back. But that's a really like disjointed way of watching things because it's just this constant introduction. Stuff happens. You don't get much build, meat in the. You don't get much meat in the sandwich. There's do no you? substance. In the, in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. So they're more about a little showcasey of characters and stuff. That's kind of tends to be how they work best, right? Mm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Anyway. Chris Yates, what have you been watching? Uh, well, well, Dan, uh, the show I've been watching was one that um, I had no idea about until you said, until you told me about it. But that's most of the shows. You're across all this stuff. I have been watching the program Duncanville. Good luck driving, Duncan. You're the handsomest brother in the world, and someday I will marry you. I've told you a thousand times, Jing. We can't get. I can't wait till we're married too. <laughs> 
Say good luck to your brother, Kimberly. Good luck. Don't forget to text and drive. Okay, quiet, everybody. I'm documenting this moment for Facebook, and I got to say something profound. You ready, honey? Okay, hang on. I have it on photo. Slow-mo. Square. Pano. Video. Slow-mo again. Okay, action! Son, it seems like yesterday I was pushing you in a stroller. Yeah. Here they come. Are you crying? Sorry, Dunker, but the day you teach your kid to drive is one of the great moments in a father's life. And unlike my dad, it's not going to end with me beating you, then taking you to Wendy's, and then beating you again. I love you, son. I love you too, Dad. That's it. We're going to die! Okay, Chris. I always called you Duncan just then. (laughs) Go for it. Okay, Duncan. Uh, Duncanville, what's the deal with it? Tell me. Because Dun- I've never heard of the show before. <laughs> this is a 22-ish minute um, animated series from the people at Fox. Uh, I'm not familiar with Fox, you please. Might, you might be familiar with other shows they've made. You might remember them from such shows as <laughs> uh, The King of the Hill. Never heard of it. Uh, Bob's Burgers. Not a clue. Family Dad. Zero idea what language you're speaking. American Guy. What even is this? Uh, and uh, more famously, The Simpsons. And of mm. course... no. Nah. <laughs> And uh, this particular program is um, has been created by a few very talented people, including Mike Scully, the uh, Simpsons showrunner, producer, occasional writer. Yeah. Now, Mike Scully, I've always had a complicated relationship with because the season I tapped out of the Simpsons is season nine. So Homer went to New York City. Good episode. The rest of the season, I just wasn't into. What are you talking about? The, the whole entire season nine after that one episode was no good. Correct. Yeah, right. So anyway, that, that's where I tapped out. This is what, uh, what would be uh, season, what, what year are we talking about here? Like 97, 98? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Around yeah. there, because it was started in 89. Yeah, let's say it's like 97. Yeah. That's, that's when 1997 Dan said, no, I'm out, <laughs> I'm done. And as a 17-year-old, I knew what I was talking about. Yeah, that's right. You so anyway. All your stuff worked out at 17. I, I blame Mike Scully. Because, like, he took over that season. I'm like, you know, whatever, Mike Scully. But there's been a whole bunch of shows that have been involved with since that I've really quite enjoyed. Uh, the Carmichael Show being one of the funniest shows from the last, like, even five years. And he was an EP on that show. And then come to Duncanville. And I thought, uh, Mike Scully. Because, you know, residual, just, you know, whatever. But I was watching, I'm like, you know what? This is actually incredibly good. And it's very funny, right? Yeah. I thought it was great. Um, I really think it picks up. See, I think that there, there's definitely changes in the rhythm of the comedy and The Simpsons over time. Everyone mm. will agree with that. Yeah. Um, like after he went to New York City. <laughs> but there was stuff about the um, actual way that this... Uh, I, I think it was very reminiscent of some of those really great Simpsons episodes. I, I felt like the way that the dialogue was put through and the way that the wait, jokes Wait, wait, wait. So let's, let's backtrack a second because people have never heard of this program before. Sure. Like literally no one's ever really heard of the no, show. No, no, no. Uh, so what's the premise for the okay, show? What's the, the premise? Setup? The premise is... It's a, it's a kid. It's a family in America. What? They live in a neighborhood. They're, they're going about their business. So you're saying there's a mother. There's a father. There's a mother. There's a father. There's, there's a, a precocious teenage boy. There's a precocious teenage boy. There's a precocious teenage girl. There's a young child. Uh, there's some neighbors. There's Duncan's the oldest. Duncan is the oldest. Duncan is a, uh, um, I would suggest, a, uh, what's that What's that sort of teenage? Angsty, malaise. Yeah, he's sort of like 12, 13-ish. No, a bit older. He's driving. He's 16. Oh, that's right. He is too, yeah. Um, so that's 16 America, right? Yeah, so he's got that whole kind of... Uh, he's very fami- he's very reminiscent of the other... Uh, no, I was going to say Fox cartoon, but it's not. It's the Netflix cartoon, F, F is for Family, the um, Bill Burr yep. animated show that came out. Uh, who in the, the teenage son in that is a very similar character to this. 
No, no offense, Duncanville, uh, <laughs> and it's, but it's, it's certainly not a new character anyway. Like it's kind of the same. It's the teenage kids in that '70s show. It's the teenage kids you yeah. see in every but show. His teenage sister maybe two or three years younger, and then it's like an infant, like, yeah, you know, yeah. maybe like three or four years old. Yeah, but, a little Stewie. Yeah, um, but a bit older than that. A little bit older than Stewie. True. One of my favorite moments is like I think that little girl is just like amazing. Yeah, yeah. There's this great moment where um, Duncan's like getting irritated with her sister, and like it's maybe like two minutes since the first episode. But the little sister is, like, just there, like, absolutely smitten with her older brother and just in love with him. And to the point where she says something about how they're going to be married one day. And he just replies back. And I don't remember exactly what the line was. But it was just indicating that this is a regular thing that happens where he has to keep reminding his sister <laughs> that not going to get married at one point in their lives. And, you know, yeah, just his sister. It's, it's very cute. Yeah. Um, and, and yes. Yeah, so, okay. So, we do, how much more premise do we need? That's, no, that's it. That's yeah. yeah, good. Uh, he's, he's got a bunch of friends. Bunch of friends bunch of no hopers they all hang out um the dad character is very funny dad is like a he dad is desperately trying to be a cool dad that's why i've got this ponytail was one of my favorite lines there yeah uh, what's the point in, yeah how can i not be a cool dad i got a ponytail um and yeah they obviously um duncan's trying to find his way in the world as he comes of age as a teenager in a modern america which is which i say with an infliction because there has been some shows where we've been flashing back and stuff like that. Yeah, now the talent behind this is really interesting. We've got the aforementioned Mike Scully. Mm. Uh, you've also got Julie Thackeray Scully, who is his wife. Mm-hmm. I presume it's his wife. Uh, so anyway, she wrote the second episode and like I think they're the core creatives on this. But then you've also got a third person named Amy Poehler. A certain Amy Poehler, that's right, who is a... Who is a- Big part of the creative force behind the show as well, as well as doing, which we just discovered when we sat down here, <laughs> the voice of Duncan and uh, Duncan's mum as well. But yeah. Yeah. So one of the things with the show is that if you watch the secondary characters, everyone except for the father, they all kind of look like the voice actors that are playing them. Ah, okay. I didn't so know so. Duncan looks nothing like Amy Poehler, but his mum, who is also voiced by Amy Poehler, yes, looks, looks exactly like Amy Poehler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got the sisters who don't really quite look, you know, like their people, but all of his close circle of friends. Like, if you're watching, there's a couple of them who are, like, reasonably well-known, like, comedic performers. Not necessarily, like, stand-ups or anything. Yeah, they're yeah, just yeah. PBC regularly cast in, like, comedic roles. And they're all them. Yeah, right. I yeah. didn't realise that. Uh, that's very interesting. And who is the dad, then? Why did you say not the dad? Uh, well, the dad is, I want to say the guy's name is Ty Burr, the father from Modern Family. Ah, there you go. I and he looks quite different, yeah, obviously. But I did, re- because he wouldn't be able to make the jokes about Yeah. Cool dad, if that was the case. <laughs> Um, I was watching it with my uh, partner and she kept saying, are you embarrassed watching this show? Because he would do things like clean his record collection and... Host podcasts about TV <laughs> talk shows. Talk about his ponytail and host sort of podcast about a TV show. And she's like, I'm like, why would I be embarrassed? This guy's cool. <laughs> I love this guy. Did you know who the uh, like recurring sort of celeb sort of actor is playing the teacher? They've got this really cool teacher at school. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't pick uh, up it. Wiz Khalifa. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. I did see Wiz was in there, but I, I wasn't sure who, uh, what character, which is very cool. Yeah. Um, Wiz smokes weed and is, is a very, a very funny guy. <laughs> so so you're pro-weed. Yes. Uh, well, sure, Dan, whatever. Um, <laughs> it's just good to get, it's just good to have someone who's so pro-weed on a massive American TV show, I think, like Willie Nelson. Yeah, sure. Uh, on King of the Hill <laughs> for a few episodes, which was very good. Um, but yes, anyway, uh, don't feel, I mean, it's kind of, you know what you're getting into. It's a 20 minute Fox cartoon. They don't deviate too far from the, um, from each other, really. No. And so, so you know what, you know how, you know what the investment is and you know how it's going to make you feel when you watch it. And it does all those things very well so far, I thought. And very funny. It kind of did make me reminiscent of some of those. It made me, made me nostalgic for some of those, um, 
uh, Simpsons episodes where the dialogue was quite quick and the jokes came fast and there's a certain pacing to it that was really good. I think you're right, but I think maybe where The Simpsons differs a little bit is The Simpsons is very much about using archetypes of characters, whereas this is like oh, a yeah. legitimate like family, and yeah, it's very definitely. much. It's not really relying on like sort of cultural jokes. It's really just about like the humor that actually emanates from a family. Totally, I'm more talking about the rhythm of the dialogue, I yeah, guess, yeah, which is really speci- which is really noticeable. I felt anyway when I which started watching. Probably stems from the Mike Scullyness of it all. Yeah. Um, mm. So, in conclusion... Duncanville, really good. Yes. Amazed people aren't really talking about this yet. Yeah, I hope, I hope it picks up and gets a little bit more attention to it, because I would certainly like to see it last for at least, ooh, let's say, 30 years. Yeah, <laughs> let's not like get crazy, but I'd like to see a few years out of this one. What show could last 30 years? <laughs> um, okay, that's me done. I'm out of here. Oh, no, wait a minute. You've got another thing to talk about, Dan. What are you, you said at the start that you'd watched a movie. I saw a movie. Wow. I went to the picture house. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Richard Jewell. Let's get a new tape going. All right, Richard, here's what we're going to do. We need a voice exemplar. I want you to say into this phone, there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Richard, you're a national hero now. Thank you, sir. But I was just doing my job. always look at the guy who found the bomb just like you always look at the guy who found the body. Jewel fits the profile of the lone bomber. A frustrated white man who is a police wannabe who seeks to become a hero. We're running it. Now, Chris, unless I'm mistaken, anytime there's a Clint Eastwood movie, you're like, Dan, come on, let's go to the Let's go. Let's sign me up. I remember when we went and saw The Unforgiven together. (laughs) Uh, That was pretty good. We saw Dirty Harry together as as embryotic uh, people. Scully? That was fun. I saw Scully. Is the, that a thing? That was the one of the plane. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Captain Scully saved a lot of people. Or was um, it Captain Sully? I think it might be Sully. Yeah, I think you've got Mike Scully on the brain now. Um, Maybe I'm just thinking of that, that monster from Monsters, Inc. <sighs> Is there any, I don't think I like any Clint Eastwood movies. He's terrible. I, I can't stand him. No, well, see, Clint Eastwood, most of his uh, like filmography from, like, say, the last five, ten years. 10, 15, 10, 20 15, years. 15, 20. <laughs> like, they're all the movies that, like, they're made for the dads of the world. Yeah. Okay, so these aren't films that are necessarily particularly challenging with their material. The production style of them isn't necessarily particularly that challenging either. But they're always dependably well-made, and there's usually good performances in them, and you're never necessarily going to have a bad time watching it. But at the same time, like I think it's rare that a lot of people look at a Clint Eastwood film and say, that is my favourite movie. <laughs> like, that's, that's just dependable movies. Maybe maybe some of the 70s movies. Maybe people say that about... Um, oh, yeah, but I'm talking about like, the actual... like The things that you call a Clint Eastwood film, Clint Eastwood which is the ones films. that he's produced and yeah, directed yeah. and, you know, <laughs> he's like the core creative on. Uh, Clint Eastwood's a bit interesting as a director in that he doesn't like sort of wasting time. So pretty much, <laughs> you know, you get there on set and you're filming from the get-go... He'll t- do a couple of takes and, like, that's it. Right. He just wants you to hit your marks, shoot your thing so that everyone can be gone by 5 p.m. <laughs> well, that, I appreciate that about yeah. it. I always think they waste way too much time making movies. Yeah, and Clint Eastwood would agree. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, maybe I'm on board with Clint. So actors I'll like, work with him, I just won't watch his films. Yeah, actors like working with him. <laughs> yes, I'll bet. Yeah. Uh, Richard Jewell, I was a bit hesitant to go and see it. There's some controversy around this one. So if you don't know Richard Jewell, and I will admit... Outside of the events that it talks about, I was pretty unfamiliar with uh, Richard Jewell as a person. Real-life guy. He was a security guard. Think of him as like your uh, Paul Blart, Moorcock kind of a yep. guy. Um, this is a serious drama. Yep, I've got Paul Blart in my head in this but Clint no, Eastwood drama. He's kind of one of those sort of cops where, you know, he's, 
A rent-a-cop, I think they call them. Rent-a-cop, you know, he's got aspirations of, you know, um, you know, greater policing than he's actually really doing. That sort of thing. Yeah. But real-life guy, uh, he became a hero one day because he had been hired to do security for the Atlanta Olympics. Mm-hmm. And if you remember the Atlanta Olympics in 96, there was a terrorist incident that took place. Mm-hmm. Bomb was set off and there was a whole bunch of... There was like some concerts in the days leading up to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And at one of those concerts, a small explosive went off. A whole bunch of people got showered with uh, like nails and stuff. Oh, yeah. That's right. I do remember that. Oh, horrible. It was just nasty and gross. Uh, a couple of people died. A lot of people were injured from it. And this guy had seen a bag under a chair and had, you know... No one thought, oh, you know, terrorism, when does that ever really happen? Because again, 96. Uh, So no one really sort of thought that much of it, but there actually was a bomb under it. And thanks to the fact that he was actually good at his job and was, you know, being security cautious, heaven forbid a security guard does that, (laughs) uh, he secured the thing, saved a lot of lives that day, and he's legitimately a hero. Great. Okay, so the media had picked up on the fact that this had happened, put out there as a hero, but then when they were trying to work out who's responsible for the bomb, he fits the profile of like the idea of the hero who had ah. actually I, had placed the bomb there and had said, oh, guys, there's a bomb there. And then, you know, so the FBI are looking at him quite seriously. Word gets out to the media that they're looking at this guy. And so his life is just completely destroyed because suddenly he's gone from being unexpected hero to being one of the greatest villains and monsters of mm. mankind. So you're watching this story about him dealing... Because he's not like the smartest, brightest dude by any means. And his mum doesn't know how to deal with any of this. Uh, she's maybe a little bit more with it than he is. But even so, she wants to do good by the sun. Uh, the main guy, Richard Jewell, is played by an actor that I don't remember the name of. But he was in Manhunter. Oh, uh, yeah, the um, Netflix yeah, uh, David yeah, Finch yeah. show. Uh, Kathy Bates plays the mother. Okay, so, yeah, it's always great seeing her. Yes. And she's lost a lot of weight now and always takes me a moment to go, oh, wait, it's Kathy Bates. <laughs> uh, you've got... She was great in The Office. She was in The Office, yeah, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah, I just saw a couple of those late episodes the other day. I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. Wow. She played, like, the southern, like, you know, tycoon who bought the company. And, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I do remember that. Fantastic. Uh, Sam Rockwell's in there. He oh. plays a guy that sort of befriends Richard Jewell sort of early in the film. He and, can get a good cast together, Clint. Yeah, he gets a great cast together. Um, so you've got Sam Rockwell in there, and he's like this really charming, sort of great, sort of lawyer character. Really dodgy, but just gets around wearing thongs and shorts a lot. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's a great yeah. Sam Rockwell sort of a role. And then you've got John Hamm playing the FBI agent who has kind of inadvertently framed Richard Jewell for a crime that he clearly hasn't committed. Oh, right. None of the evidence really stacks up for it, but whatever. But anyway, you just got like these great actors just giving great performances. And again, it's kind of like the gentrified of movies. Right. And that you're not really getting anything amazing that you haven't seen before. But like, there's just really good performances. It's just really well executed. Like, you know that you're in there for a confident experience watching it, even though you're not going to come out of it saying that was like an astounding, you know, two hours of my time. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt. It's me, Dan. I've had to record something to drop into the podcast here because, sorry to break it to you, there's no more podcast. We exported the file, everything seemed fine. Myself and Chris, we just high-fived as we do at the end of every podcast. It's just basically the little celebration of a job well done. So, cut to a couple of days later, I'm sitting in my lounge room, I'm editing the file, everything's going swimmingly, I'm laughing, I'm enraptured with the deep intellectual discourse taking place in the podcast... I'm scrap- like rubbing my hands together. I'm thinking, you've done it again, Barrett. You've done it again. And then what happens? No more audio. It just stops. So I'm looking at the rest of the time code and it's just silence from then on. So here's what you missed. Uh, we continue talking about the Clint Eastwood film. 
Uh, Chris, he admitted that he's actually a huge Clint Eastwood fan. He said that Space Cowboys is probably his favorite movie of all time. It was an unexpected admission, but, you know, this is what happened on the podcast. Chris, I'm sure if he was here, would admit this exactly what happened. Now, just a bit of a Space Cowboys bit of trivia for you, because I know that's why you come here to the Always Be Watching podcast. Space Cowboys actually has a appearance in it by one John Hamm. It's one of his early movie roles, and obviously Clint Eastwood clearly remembered his one line from Space Cowboys. And look, I'm going to admit, I've never seen Space Cowboys, but my understanding of the scene, as recounted by John Hamm in a podcast interview I heard a couple of days ago, uh, basically the scene consists of some people walking up to him, they ask for directions, he says, over there, and then the characters keep on going. And I'm sure the camera just lingered on John Hamm afterwards, because he's John Hamm, Clint Eastwood knows where the money makers are. So, we wound down our conversation about Clint Eastwood and um, Space Cowboys, and I guess we finished talking about Richard Jewell at some point. Then we actually moved on to a secret hidden segment, which is really what I wanted to talk about this week on the podcast, which was the, well, I guess maybe what would be one of the concluding segments in our long series called A Poo Watch. Now, Chris, longtime Simpsons fan, longtime Simpsons apologist, me, longtime Simpsons realist, uh, we both have strong opinions about The Simpsons, and we've both been following very closely the uh, furor, we'll say controversy, uh, surrounding the Apu character. Now, Apu, long-time voiced by Hank Azaria. Hank Azaria, white guy doing a very broad, horribly racist caricature of a Indian convenience worker. Now, when The Simpsons started back in 1989, this was a little bit more accepted. So, The Simpsons, as you're well aware, because you listen to this podcast, you've lived in pop culture... And The Simpsons is definitely a, you know, defining aspect of our culture. So, you know, uh, basically, the show deals really heavily with stereotypes and subverts them in certain ways and plays in something in other ways and really sort of has a lot of fun with what we sort of see as the cultural sort of demarcation of what these characters are and what they represent. So, for example, uh, if you see Fat Tony, he's going to have, like, strong ties to the Italian community, and, like, he's a gangster, he's a mobster, and plays into all the stereotypes of that. And then the other characters sort of play against that and what that means to the residents of Springfield, and it basically uses a lot of these stereotypes as a way to define what society is and how it functions and engages with itself. So, when 1989 starts, and I think of who wasn't quite there at the beginning, so I think he's like a 1990 character, but he's like right there, right at the start, really. Uh, when he was created, he was just part of the rich tapestry of characters that created for Springfield that really reflected some of the interesting characters you'd encounter through day-to-day life in the world. And so I think at that stage, you just had like this emergence of a lot of um, Indian people had moved to the US and had gotten involved in launching their small businesses. Because an interesting thing about small business is that often it's the immigrants that start small businesses and, you know, grow wealth from there. And it's a great way into the economy for a lot of people who've moved to a new country. Um, so, for some reason, the Indian population has sort of settled on convenience stores. And so it became a thing for a while that convenience stores run by Indian guys and ladies, I guess. You know, whatever. It was a long time ago. But here we are in 2020. And we've still got this stereotypical character being portrayed on TV, again, by a white guy. And what was kind of funny and acceptable 30-odd years ago, not necessarily really the case anymore. And depending who you ask, obviously this hasn't really been acceptable for quite a while. But broadly, I think you could say that society at this point is definitely ready to rub their hands and move on from that sort of a thing. Um, So there's been conversation in the last couple of years about this. A lot of it spurred by Hari Kondalabu, who had this documentary called The Problem with the Pooh. 
Uh, it's a really interesting idea he raises. I don't think the documentary itself is particularly amazing, but I really like him, and he's got like a whole bunch of interesting people on the doco as well. So, good conversation starter, and it's reached the point where, as of this week, Hank Azaria is officially no longer the voice of Apu. He's come out and said this in a couple of interviews now, and you've got some official word from the producers of the show saying that, you know, the character of Apu, you know, beloved character, we expect more adventures with Apu, but, you know, it's time to move on. So, myself and Chris had a lengthy conversation about that, about the history of the conversation surrounding this issue, and we sort of batted back and forth a little bit about the idea of who would we actually like to see take over from Apu going forward. Now, we didn't really have any sort of major revelations or insights. I mean, you don't come to the Always Be Watching podcast for deep insights and people actually know what they're talking about. We've never traded on that, nor are we going to start now. But the suggestion I had was, why not just go with the absolute obvious person and get Hari Kondalabu to do the voice? Because, you know, first of all, he's a performer. Secondly, he's got a really good voice. Third, he's got a strong tie to the character. Why not just bring this into reality and make it a thing? Yes, the floodgates probably get open for lots of other uh, sort of, you know, um, up-and-coming comedians to try to make a name for themselves by ripping out, you know, the... Uh, ripping down Simpsons characters, but I don't think that's really likely to happen. Like, that seems just a bit outside of the realm of likelihood. I think this is a unique situation. I think Hari is a gifted, like, talented comedian. I've liked him for a few years. I used to see him quite a fair bit on At Midnight, which is this terrible Comedy Central show that he used to be a semi-regular appearer on. And also, like, he's, you know, regularly been seen doing stand-up on late-night shows. I can't say I've seen him that much beyond there, but, you know, I've always enjoyed him. And why not bring him on here? He's good. Pooh's a good character. Like, let's merge the two together and make it a done deal. Anyway, that's all we talked about on the podcast. And, you know, I've got nothing else really to talk about at this point. But anyway, thank you very much for listening to the podcast. Um, I will do the, you know, farewells because there's no other audio. Basically, I tried faking it with an old episode of audio didn't really work. So here we are. I created the majesty of the last couple of minutes through, you know, this interpretive little conversation into my microphone while my dog stares at me in the corner, very confused about what I'm doing. Anyway, this is the end of Always Be Watching for another week. We'll be back next week with what I believe is episode 52. That is a lot of Always Be Watchings. Uh, We'll be talking about some shows. I don't know what they'll be just yet. Will it be Terrace House related? Who can say for sure, but I do know I've watched another 30 episodes since we recorded this conversation. Okay, that's really not true at all. i watched like maybe five episodes. I'm definitely in the mid to late 20s though. Anyway, guys, I've got to get out of here. My dog, she's not happy. This has always been watching. My name's Dan Barrett. I was joined on this podcast as I always am and hopefully always will be. We're doing this till one of us is dead. So we're doing it for at least another 18 months. Uh, Chris Yates. Uh, Chris, you can find on the internet, but he doesn't like to advertise where he is. He's kind of like Batman in a lot of regards. I don't know if Batman's online. He's probably got an AOL account still, I'd imagine, though. Um, he's got the money to get a proper account, but, you know, just, you know, he set it up. He's busy. Uh, anyway, uh, you can find more, you can find more, always be watching, on the website, alwaysbewatching.com. You can check out our social media, uh, just search for always be watching. A whole bunch of things will crop up. Facebook, Twitter, Reddit all sorts of gear you can find us it's been a pleasure we'll be back in a couple of days time with a new always be watching podcast thank you for listening